Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 22. In this lesson, you will learn the aorist tense, and then I will take a look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. First, the aorist tense. The Greek aorist expresses action primarily as the English simple past tense. The aorist is sometimes called a timeless tense, because the time aspect is only found in the indicative and the participle. The aorist denotes the action simply as occurring without reference to its progress. The aorist denotes the action as an event without defining the manner of its occurrence or its completeness. It expresses the fact of the event or the event without regards to its duration. Dr. Young presents the heiress this way. He says, It would be better to view the heiress as grammaticalizing the speaker's perception of an event in its entirety or as a single whole. The difference between the perfective aspect, that is the heiress, and the imperfective aspect, that is the present and the imperfect, is the difference between viewing an entire parade from a helicopter, he calls that the perfective view, and viewing one float at a time pass by from the curb or grandstand, the imperfective view. You see how Dr. Young presents that? He gives the bird's eye view, the helicopter view of this parade, as a perfective or the aorist view. Whereas one float at a time, or the curbside view, would be the imperfective tense. That is, the present and the imperfect. I like the way Dr. Young expresses that. Let's take a look at the uses of the aorist. First, there is the constantive aorist. The constantive aorist describes the action or event as a whole without regard to the internal workings of the action. That is to say, it takes the occurrence as a single whole without regard to its duration. This is the basic meaning and the idea of the aorist. Examples are found in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Paul writes this, But the death reigned, there it is, there's the aorist, but the death reigned, most translations just say death reigned, from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. It's a simple past tense. Another example is found in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. There we find this, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled, there's the aorist, they assembled, simple past tense, with the church and taught, there's that aorist again, past tense, taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The next usage we find is the ingressive aorist. The ingressive aorist expresses the action or event from its inception, from its beginning or entrance of the action or state. 
An example is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says there, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. See, the I added the word became poor because that is the ingressive heiress. The sense is there that it was from the beginning. He became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Another example is found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 7. But the king became angry. There's that ingressive heiress again. It just says, and the king, it's passive, so you could say was angry, but you could translate that, became angry. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. The next usage of the aorist is called the cumulative aorist. The cumulative aorist expresses the action from the point of view of its cessation or completion. Thus, it is normally translated as the perfect tense. The cumulative aorist is normally used with verbs of effort or process where the end result is attained. So an example is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Here's what Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned. There's the cumulative aorist, translated as a perfect. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Another example is found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 11. Here John states, But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There it is. Has blinded is the cumulative aorist, speaking as a, a past tense, a completed cumulative uh, sense. Blinded his eyes. Next, let's take a look at the nomnic aorist. The nomnic aorist is used to express a generally accepted fact. An example is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. There it is, the nomnic aorist. It's just a statement of fact. The f grass withers, and the flower fades. There's the other nomnic aorist. The flower fades away. Another example of a nomnic aorist is Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, there it is, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now here, the sense is translated as a perfect, but the idea is a statement of fact. Once one belongs to Christ, they have crucified the flesh. They just simple past tense, they crucified the flesh as a statement of fact. Another example of the aorist is the epistolary aorist. The epistolary aorist 
is used by the author to place himself at the viewpoint of his readers to express an act or event that is present or future. Dr. Wallace clarifies this definition like this. This is the use of the aorist indicative in the epistles in which the author self-consciously describes his letter from the time frame of the audience. From the time frame of the audience. Here's an example. Philippians chapter 2, verse 28. Therefore, I have sent... There's that epistolary aorist. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. The next usage of the aorist is called the dramatic aorist. The dramatic aorist is used as a device for emphasis to express a present reality with the certitude of a past event. The English translation can be expressed using the word just or just now. An example of this is found in Mark chapter 5 verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. There it is, the dramatic aorist. Expressing an event with certitude, and, and as a past event. Has died, or some would translate it, just now died. Another example is found in Matthew chapter 26, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. That's the dramatic aorist. It is a certitude of a past event. You have just now heard it. Finally, there is the futuristic aorist. The futuristic aorist is used to describe an event that has not yet taken place, yet is seen as already completed. Sometimes it's called a proliptic aorist. An example is found in John chapter 13, verse 31. Then when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. See, the event has not happened yet. But the idea is a futuristic aorist. The Son of Man is glorified. Another example is in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. This is part of that great golden chain of Paul. And whom he predestined, those he also called. And whom he called, those he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. There's the aorist, but since not all are glorified yet, that's called the futuristic aorist. We will be glorified, but it's spoken of in the simple past tense. Now let's take a look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I hope you have gone to the website and downloaded the detailed analysis, and you have that in front of you and your translation, and let's take a look at this. 
Let me introduce this section by stating that John places alongside this legal aspect of the law of love, with all its justice and liberty, the law of the witness. A biblical witness is seen as a legal witness and includes two or three in a legal proceeding. That's described in Deuteronomy, in the law. The most important legal witness in Scripture, however, concerns the testimony of God's truth and salvation. This witness is found in Israel as a nation, the prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders, and Jesus' followers. This section of Scripture describes the two most important witnesses we have today are the Holy Spirit and Scripture. Take a look at verse 6. The first phrase. This is the one who came by water and blood. In an effort to silence the heresy that Jesus was only the Christ when the Spirit came upon him at his baptism, but left him before he died, and the many other heresies concerning his personhood, John defines Jesus completely as Jesus Christ, the one who came in the flesh, who came by water and blood. The near demonstrative pronoun, hutas. This expresses this one, the Jesus Christ, the subject of this phrase, and points out with clearness and certainty the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that came by water and blood, a simple statement of fact concerning his official earthly ministry as the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. The present of I me, he is, controls the tense as he exists in a state of being as a simple fact of a past event as is meant by the aorist participle of erakamai. It's a second aorist active participle, nominative, masculine, singular, and the definite article is there. So it's translated the one that came. You might say the one that came exists as Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the one that came. By or through, preposition dia, is used in the sense of instrumentality. The instrument or medium of Jesus' coming by or through, hudar, the water, and the hama, the blood. What does it mean to come by water and blood? Well, Dr. Barker provides an overview as he writes this. This ignomatic statement has given rise in the church to many interpretations. Augustine linked the reference to John chapter 19, verse 34, where the piercing of Jesus' side produced water and blood. Calvin and Luther connected it to John 4 and 6, and saw it in reference to the sacraments. Plummer and Candelish related it to Old Testament sacrificial symbolism, the water of purification and the blood of sacrifice. 
More commentators today, however, agree with Trotillion and see the water referring to Jesus' baptism and the blood to his death on the cross. What does it mean to come by water and blood? Many suggestions have been proposed by this statement. He came by water and blood. But I take the position that this is answering the heretic of the day, in particular, answering the error of the Gnostic. Thus, Jesus came by water, speaks of his baptism, and blood refers to his death on the cross. The four main interpretations are this. Number one, the water associated with Jesus' baptism and blood is associated with his death. That is his formal public ministry. Number two, the water and blood that came through his incarnation that is common to natural birth. That is, God came in the flesh. The third interpretation, the water and blood that flowed from his side on the cross. In, in other words, that's a reflection of John chapter 19, verses 34 through 35. And the fourth interpretation is the baptism of the believer and the Lord's Supper. It seems that all but the fourth option makes sense to me in this context. But the context suggests the first two options seem more plausible. The first option is plausible because of the historical grammatical understanding of the Apostles' writing concerning the heresy of Gnostic philosophy. The second option is plausible because the context flows from verse 1 through 5 that speak about what it means to be begotten of God and born of God. So the natural flow into verses 6 through 8 concerning this natural birth of Jesus is a as a real man. So that also makes sense. Move on to the next phrase. Jesus the Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Many scholars have suggested that the cessationists like Corinthians and some later Gnostics said that the Christ Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism but departed before his death or that, like the Doetists and some later Gnostics, the cessationists believed that Jesus was actually baptized but could not actually die, being eternal. It is also possible that some Doetists saw in the water and blood of John 19.34 the picture of a demigod. Olympian deities in Greek mythology had ichor, a watery substance instead of blood. Thus, they may have stressed his deity at the expense of his humanity. That's what Craig Keener says. John stops all such claims by the Gnostics, saying that every part of Jesus' incarnation in the flesh is part of the person prophesied in the Old Testament concerning the Christ, Emmanuel. Emmanuel was to be named Aesos, Jesus, which is of Hebrew origin for Yeshua, Joshua, meaning Jehovah is salvation. 
That comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and also reflected in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. His name thus associates the Messiah, the Christos, the, the Greek Christos, the anointed one of the Old Testament with Jesus, the Son of God. To be anointed in the Old Testament context is to consecrate a person for a sacred task. So, usually priests, kings, and prophets were anointed for service. In the case of Jesus, the term Messiah has a dual service role of both suffering servant and reigning. So, both suffering and reigning are seen in this person of the Messiah. And it reflects both his first and second comings. With the Old Testament concept in mind, the reference to the Messiah combines in Jesus' work three different roles or offices as prophet, priest, and king. Thus, the unique person of Jesus satisfies the three messianic roles as prophet, priest, in the sense of his sacrificial death, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, as our intercessor, but also views his return as king. Jesus is referred to the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Son of David. Those three expressions reflecting those three positions. There is a textual variant here, as the Texas Receptus has the definite article, the Christ, while the NA27 does not contain that definite article. The primary teaching in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah is that he is known as the Son of God. That's Psalm 2. Who is in fact God? This is the confounding question Jesus poses to the Jewish leadership in Matthew chapter 22. And it reflects back to Psalm 110 that served to shut the mouth of the skeptic. The Messiah is the Son of God, very God. It is when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist that the Holy Spirit comes upon him and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Thus he publicly enters into service as the Son of God. Here's what Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says. When he, that is Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alightening upon him, and suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus did not come in to hudatai, in the water, or as most translate, with the water, in the sense of in the sphere or element of water alone, as the heretics taught, but by both the water and the blood. The word hudar, the water, is the common word for water. And the water has many biblical metaphors, that is, as a cleansing symbol um, in the baptism as a symbol of the Holy Spirit and elsewhere. 
there is no reason to take it metaphorically here. The sense used here is that Jesus came as an historic fact in the Old Testament sense of commissioning one to a specific service or act. That service was to fulfill the messianic promise or promises of the Old Testament. It is important for John to establish that Jesus did not come by water, manon, only or alone. Ala in to hudatai, kai to hamatiai, but by the water and the blood. The two prepositions in, by or with, are either instrumental meaning by means of, or locative, meaning in association with. Thus, this speaks of his messianic work where it is declared the purpose of his water baptism is to fulfill all righteousness. That's the purpose expressed in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Dr. Robertson says, these two incidences the water as baptism and blood in his death in the incarnation are singled out because at the baptism Jesus was formally set apart to his messianic work by the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him and by the Father's audible witness and because at the cross his work reached its culmination as he said it is finished. That's what the great uh, Greek grammarian Dr. Robinson says. Move down to the next phrase. And the Spirit is the one who is testifying because the Spirit is the truth. John moves to the testimony that comes by the Spirit. It is said within modalism and other non-Trinitarian camp that God changes into Christ into Jesus, the Spirit, or the Father. But there are not three persons within the Godhead. But one means one, not three. That's what they say. Jesus did not become God as they would say. You see this? Scripture teaches that Jesus has always existed as God, or what is declared as the eternality of Christ. That is clear from Scripture. Micah 5.2 speaks of Jesus' goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, speaking of his existence from the days of eternity past, and the uniqueness of the Savior's birth would be unlike any other, because he was preexistent, as described in John chapter 1, verse 1. The Spirit testifies to our spirit. That's declared in Romans 8.16. So John points out that kai, even, or indeed, tanuma estin ta marturion. The Spirit is the one that testifies. The present participle of maturio, present active participle, nominative masculine singular, and the definite article is with it. The one that is testifying speaks of the continuous testifying activity that the Spirit performs. His occupation, you might say, is to testify to us that Jesus came in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
This truth is presented by use of the logical conclusion hati, because the spirit is the truth. Here one finds a simple statement of fact concerning the spirit as the spirit is the truth. Aletheia. The two definite articles placed with the subject case, that is the subject nominative and the predicate nominative, emphasize the source of the truth is from the spirit or very God. The definite article placed with truth identifies a specific truth that is in view. This truth is that the spirit testifies to our spirit that Jesus is the Christ and that everything about his initiation into service as the suffering servant, that is his baptism, up to his death on the cross, serves as a testimony concerning prophecy fulfilled, and that he did not stop being the Christ before his death. That's what the Gnostics taught. This counters that. Notice the usage of the words spirit and truth in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. They point out the deity of the Spirit. Notice what it says. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointed teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. You see how the Spirit the doctrine of the Spirit through 1 John is speaking about truth and is speaking about teaching us. Those are the two big points of the Spirit in 1 John. As is contrary to the fundamental teaching concerning special knowledge and special revelation from God taught by the Gnostics, John teaches that the Spirit teaches truth in conjunction with the Word of God by testifying to us. As the Spirit of God is said to bear witness to our spirit, that is the big point. Dr. Enns summarizes the testifying ministry of the Spirit as this. Jesus promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit will bear witness of me in John chapter 15, verse 26. The word bear witness means to testify concerning someone. The Holy Spirit would testify concerning the teaching of Christ that he would come forth from the Father and had spoken the truth of God. The same word is used of the disciples testifying concerning Christ in John chapter 15, verse 27. As the disciples would bear witness concerning Christ, so also would the Holy Spirit bear witness of Christ? That was a quote from Paul Inns, the Moody Handbook of Theology. Move down to verse 7, the first phrase. For there are three who are testifying. I want to bring up this uh, diff huge textual variant uh, later on, so I'm just going to cover verse 7 right now. That is all of verse 7. For there are three who are testifying. That is it. 
So let me cover verse 7. The objective fact is now expressed as the hati conjunction is used and translated for. There are three that testify. The adjective trace, three men, it's an adjective nominative masculine plural, three men is properly three. But Greek properly codifies them as masculine with pronouns. The three nouns mentioned, that is the spirit, the water, and the blood, are all neuter. But since the spirit, although neuter, uses the masculine adjective specifically for him, the proper thing to do is to decline the adjective as masculine. Some say the usage is indicating fullness of testimony, but I think it's just as simple as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is masculine. That's how we translate it. But some people do see this Hebrew idiom as indicating fullness of testimony. The participle maturio, again, it's a present active participle, nominative masculine plural with a definite article, those that are testifying or the ones that testify express the present continuous condition or state of being that exist. The translation might better read for three, they are the ones bearing witness continually. Let's take a look at verse 8. The first phrase, the spirit and the water and the blood and the three are one. John speaks of an eightfold witness in his gospel as this. John the Baptist, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Son, that is really a self-witness, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Scriptures, the witness of Jesus' works, that is his, his signs and wonders, just collectively in Joannian uh, terminology, his works, the witness of the disciples, and the witness of the lives changed by Jesus through the miracles. That is an eightfold witness in his gospel. In 1 John, however, the audience is the church, and the message is narrowly focused upon orthodoxy. So the witness concerns the message of the indwelling Spirit of God. Along with the testimony of the Spirit, there is the testimony of the water and the blood. That is to say, the official testimony in Scripture concerning who Christ is during His first coming as it relates to the Messiah's ministry as the suffering servant that takes away the sin of the world. The witness is the testimony. In essence, the gospel of Christ concerning His death, burial, and resurrection. This testimony is a valid testimony because the water and blood speaks of his official ministry as prophesied in the Old Testament and serves the legal demands of a second witness that the New Testament affirms. The three witnesses are identified as the Numa, the Spirit, Tahudar, with the definite article, the water, and Tohama, with the definite article, the blood. 
While it is true that the Spirit testifies to our spirit concerning the things of God, here we find the blood and the water also testify concerning Jesus, the Son of God, that Psalm chapter 2, that came in the flesh. The testimony concerns water baptism, not spirit baptism, and the blood thus placing the focus on the human side of Jesus. The final phrase on the human side of Jesus and his special anointed service. The final phrase is a statement of fact concerning a state of being. That is to say, the three witnesses are in agreement. These three form a literary threefold truth, as the ad- adjective trace, the three witnesses, define the subject that is, that is, esten, ice, into, in. That's the numerical one. Actually, it has the definite article there. Notice that. It is the one. The definiteness of the number one points to the witness as having one message. And all are in agreement. What a message this is. John brings the heart of Gnosticism, special revelation, that the super-spiritual enlightened Greek professes to a complete halt because of the doctrine of the witness of God concerning salvation and who Jesus is. Anyone that teaches contrary to the witness that already exists in us from the spirit of truth and the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ is Antichrist. That was his statement previously in chapter 2. That's the big point of this section. There are really two witnesses. The Holy Spirit and this water and blood speak of his public ministry, which speaks really of Scripture, the Old Testament prophecy, and the Scripture that was revealed to them in the form of the, the, the gospel message, the New Testament that they possessed in their hands that in, in that period. The Scriptures. The Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. That defines our truth. We don't have some secret special knowledge and get special knowledge because we become super spiritual like the Gnostic believed. We have all the truth we have and need in our Scriptures. And we rely upon the Holy Spirit to teach us that. Now let me talk about this, what is called the Joannian comma. That is this textural variant that we have in the Texas Receptus in the King James Version. This textual addition within the text of 1 John chapter 5, verses 7-8 through 8, has been well researched and documented. Here's what it says in the King James Version. For there are three who are testifying in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three who bear witness on in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are one. Here's what Dr. Geisler and, and Nix point out. They retell this story of how this textual edition got in the, in the Texas Receptus. Erasmus, 
omitted the longer reading from the first two editions of his Greek New Testament in 1516 and 19, and was challenged for making that omission. He hastily replied that he would include the reading in his next edition if anyone could produce even one Greek manuscript that included the reading. One 16th century Greek manuscript, the 1520 manuscript of the Franciscan friar Froy or Roy was found and Erasmus complied with his promise and inserted the longer reading in his 1522 edition. So it should be noted that this Greek text that was found, the Codex Montefaris, was copied from an earlier codex, the 326 codex, which did not contain the comma. It is this later rendering of Erasmus's Greek text that was the basis of William Tyndale's translation and the King James translation. The manuscriptal evidence, as given by Dr. Mutzinger, is as follows. The passage is absent from every known Greek manuscript except four. Here are the four. Manuscript 61. This is the uh, uh, Montefortis. It's a, 16, 6, a 16th century manuscript formerly at Oxford, now at Dublin. The second manuscript is Manuscript 88. It is a 12th century manuscript found at Naples. The passage is written in the margin by a modern hand. Notice that. It's in the margin by a modern hand. The third manuscript is Manuscript 629. It is a 14th or 15th century manuscript in the Vatican. The fourth and final manuscript is Manuscript 635. It is an 11th century manuscript. Again, the passage is written in the margin by a 17th century hand. As you can tell by this list of Greek manuscripts, they are all very late manuscripts. Another argument by Dr. Mutzinger makes is that the passage is not found in any of the ancient versions, the Coptic, the Syriac, the Armenian, the Ethiopic, the Arabic, the Slavatic, none of those. In fact, the first instance of the passage seems to have come through the Latin manuscripts. However, the passage is not found in any of the old Latin manuscripts, that is the Tertullian-type manuscripts or the uh, Augustinian-type manuscripts nor in Jerome's Vulgate, dated to about 541 or 46. Nor do these exist up to the 9th century. The research of the very first instance of this passage is told by Dr. Mutzinger as part of the 4th century Latin trustees entitled Libor Apologetics in chapter 4. Here's what he quotes. Attributed either to the Spanish heretic Priscillian, who died about 385, or to his follower, Bishop Ignatius. Apparently, the 
gloss arose when the original passage was understood to symbolize the Trinity through the mention of the three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, an interpretation which may have been first written as a marginal note afterwards found its way into the text. In the 5th century, the gloss was quoted by Latin fathers in North Africa and Italy as part of the text of the epistle. And from the 6th century onward, it is found more and more frequently in manuscripts of the Old Latin and of the Vulgate. You see how it came in? It came in through the Latin. Not in the earliest Vulgate, but in later Vulgates. Dr. Robinson, the great Greek scholar, writes, The fact and the doctrine of the Trinity do not depend on this spurious addition. Some Latin scribe caught up in Capernaum's uh, exegesis and wrote it on the margin of his text, and so it got into the Vulgate and finally into the Texas Receptus by the stupidity of Erasmus. <laughs> Boy, he's strong there, isn't he? The stupidity of Erasmus. Finally, Dr. Barnes notes this. The removal of this text does nothing to weaken the evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity, nor to modify that doctrine, as it was never used to shape the early belief of the Christian world on the subject. So its rejection and its removal from the New Testament will do nothing to modify that doctrine. The doctrine the doctrine is was embraced and held and successfully defended without it and it can do and will be so still what a great uh, quote he gives us well i hope you have enjoyed this lesson and we're getting close to the end and so i i'm glad you have stayed with this and i encourage you to translate the next section the next 3 4 verses and come back for the next lesson.